So how was it? Yay! Good. You can hear me okay? Yeah. Okay, good. All right. Good deal. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think that part was recorded, but <laughs> maybe, I'm sure she got filled in later about the hemorrhoids. They fill you in? <laughs> Look at her face. Yeah, it's pre-recorded. We had a whole lot of fun in here. Sorry. <laughs> I know. Well, actually, it was funny because this week, as I was thinking of a couple examples I could share, I was like, man, now everything I say is recorded. <laughs> it is on now. I just turned it on. But that, that's kind of scary because, like, I told my father-in-law about it, and, like, I never know. I mean, Craig could just go download it and listen to it, and I'm like. Well, then you can see how funny you actually are. Right, because he doesn't think I'm funny. <laughs> Very true. We're going to prove him wrong one way or another. All right, guys. But, yeah, let's dig in. And I, I do want to say, as I went through this, I had so much information this week that I just. I didn't want to leave anything out. So if you're on information overload, like, stop me. Or let's talk about it. And I don't have tons of discussion built in here. So interrupt me, please. Like, if you have something that you're just like, that's cool, or I want to say something right now, interrupt me. Okay? That is always welcome. These chapters were just so rich as I got into it. I really saw two parts to this. Uh, part one is Israel's asking. Part two is God's giving. Part one is Israel's asking, and part two is God's giving. And my hope is that when we walk out of here, number one, we're encouraged, but number two, we can really see um, the implications for us as far as our asking and God's giving, that we can really drive that home. This is the segment of Scripture when you put the whole Bible together, this is the segment of scripture that transitions Israel from a tribal leadership to a monarchy. So here it is, right here, chapters 8, 9, and 10. This is a big deal that they're going into this monarchy. They're now going to have a line of kings, all right? Samuel's old. It says that right at the beginning of chapter 8. So a lot of time has gone by. We don't know how much time, but quite a bit has gone by between chapters 7 and in chapter 8. So right at the end of chapter 7, remember we left off, they had this huge victory at Ebenezer, and they were celebrating the holiness of the Lord. They were worshiping God. God thunders before them, and then he gives them peace. So they've had a, a season of peace as well. So I find it really interesting that they come wanting a king to fight their battles because they're coming out of a season of peace. And I thought that was really strange. So... I don't know. I don't know if they're just scared, if nervous about it, thinking about it. But they've also just had so many times, like they come out of Egypt and God just like drowns the Egyptians in the Red Sea, and then in just the previous chapter, like He confused all the Philistines with His thunder, and then they won. It's just like, why do they need a king? Exactly. Yes. Yes. Yes, that's what's so ironic is they want this sinful human being to fight for them instead of this majestic, divine, perfect, holy God to fight for them. They just, in their minds, I think that's going to be easier. That's going to be better. Yeah. Yes. 
concept of we want something or we see something, like we have to be able to see yes. it, feel it, versus being able to have belief. We want to touch it, feel it. Yes, we want to see it. And also, like, what everybody else has always looks better than what we have, right? So this whole setup with God as our king, this doesn't look quite as good as actually having like somebody that we can bow down to, that we can actually see. So it, yeah, this is kind of insight into like humanity, right? But really it's insight into how we think too, because we do the same thing. We think the same way. Uh, so Samuel tries to make his sons the judges, that, and that's just kind of how it was done. Uh, then, but it's sort of a repeat of Eli, isn't it? Because it says that he's got these two sons, but they're evil. Well, I don't know if it doesn't use the word evil, but they are. They take bribes and they're perverting justice. So basically, they're just out to get rich, however they possibly can. And the elders of Israel, so there is some form of like government as far as the, there's, a, there's elders of Israel goes. <laughs> are you serious? She just killed it on her birthday. I know. She's amazing. I'm really glad I didn't see it. Jessica's having a... Do we need to lay hands on you, Jessica? I'm going to buy the church some home defense. <laughs> We're going to spray. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, all the spiders. All right. Whew. Okay, back out of here. <laughs> I know. I know. So the elders say, your sons are no good. We are not going to let your sons judge us. We want a king. That's what we want. Now appoint for us a king, verse 5, uh, like all the other nations. Verse 6, then we see Samuel's response is, the thing displeased Samuel. That's what it says. The thing displeased Samuel. But the literal translation of that is, the thing was evil in Samuel's eyes. The thing was evil in Samuel's eyes. But why was it evil for the people to ask for a king? I dug into this a little bit because I was like, yeah. Why, why was it evil for them to actually ask for a king? Because actually, the Torah, which is the law, the first five books of the Bible, of the Bible it, what am I doing here? Where's my Bible? It actually makes, um, it, it makes allowance for a king in, in there. So I'm going to read to you, where you can write down Deuteronomy 17, 14, and 15. The Lord said this to them, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the other nations that are around me. Isn't that interesting? God like, knew this was going to happen. He put it right here, like hundreds of years before it actually did happen. And then he goes on to say, You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. Interesting, right? It's right there. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. Well, it's like, well, what's the problem then? If God said that they could have a king, and actually, uh, if we look at Genesis 17, 6, 
God said to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So it was predicted that kings would come through this line. Genesis 35, 11, God then says to Jacob, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. And then when Jacob blesses his son Judah in Genesis 49, 10, he says to him, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So we've got these verses that make it sound like this is okay. It's it's okay for us to have a king. Okay, the problem is with this whole thing, not that they necessarily were asking for a king, they were asking for the wrong king. They were not asking for the king that God had promised. They are asking for a king like all the other nations. That's the big problem with this whole thing. You're, so, so think about it as if they had gone to God and said, Hey, we remember what you said to Abraham. We remember what you said to Jacob. We know what was said to Judah. Could, could you give us that promised king? That's different. That, that's, that's, like, that's holding God to his word. Okay, But what they're coming to God with is demanding they have a king like all the other nations. They want a king like everybody else. God's literally going to give them a guy that's like all the other nations. That's what's interesting here. Now look then with me at verses 19 and 20. I'm like using two different, using two different things. I get a little confused. 19 and 20. We already kind of talked about this. Chapter 8. And it says... But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel when he lists off all those warnings. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's what they want a king for. They want a king to assure their prosperity. They want a king to assure their success. But they've already been promised prosperity and success. Does anyone know where God promised them that? Popular verse. Joshua 1, 8, 9. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. They've been promised the very thing that they wanted a king for, but they didn't want to do it this way. They didn't want to do it this way. This way requires obedience to the Lord. They'd just rather do it their own way. Do you see that? Do you see why this is not the right kind of asking they're not asking for the promised king. Okay, they're asking, and, they're, and they're, their motives behind it, their motive behind it is for their own prosperity other than having to get that through obedience, right? They, they want to go around that, okay? For sure, for sure, yeah. 
Absolutely, which is just crazy, right? But I mean, we read it story after story after story after story, and I guess we have to remember they have a lot of years in between each of these stories, and so maybe it's easy for us to say that. And so, so does that same thing happens in our lives, right? I mean, God does something for us, but then years go by, and it kind of like doesn't count anymore because we've got a lot, lots of other stuff to worry about at this point in our lives, and we forget. We forget that God did it then. He can do it again for me now. He's still the same God. He's still faithful, right? So oh, I want to put the blame on them, but I probably shouldn't honestly do that. Now, the other, the, the other part of this is they do have a king, right? They have, they have the Lord. We've already talked about that. I want to give you the verses where it says that. Deuteronomy 33, 5. Says, Moses says this to the people just before they enter the promised land with Joshua. He says, thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun. And that's a poetic name for Israel, Jeshurun. So don't let that throw you off. Thus the Lord became king when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. So when they, they um, I don't know if it was that, I forget where it was, but, but they reinstated the covenant just prior to going into the promised land. And this is what Moses is referring to. That moment, God became your king. So they have, they have times when they can go back when God was appointed their king. Uh, I accidentally, I'm going to call it accidentally. Oh, that just made me, Ethan loves doing this right now. All the time he's like, are we having dinner? Or like, can I go play? Like, he just doesn't know what this means. I just did it. I accidentally read Malachi 1.14 this week. And it says, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So he calls himself a great king. Okay. Another good verse is Psalm 47, 6 through 8. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. I love the presence, present tense there. God is the king of all the earth. He's still the king right now of all the earth. Okay. So what we're establishing here in all of this is that not, they're asking for a king wasn't necessarily wrong. It was the motive behind their asking for this king. They're asking for the wrong king. They're not asking for, for the promised king. All right. And they would like to get around, a diff, they'd like to get a, around this whole obedience thing to the Lord. And they're not trusting him. They want something that they can see instead. All of those factors come into play. Right? So th it brings up this point then. By asking for a king, like all the other nations have, they are implying that they want to be like those other nations. Right? We, we just would like to do it that way. We don't want to do it our way. And yet, what is their calling? To be apart. Yes! <laughs> their calling is to be different. To be set apart, to not be like the other nations. Israel is called to be unlike the other nations because they are called to be like God. They're called to be like God. Leviticus 11.26, sorry, Leviticus 11.26. The Lord says to them, you shall be holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. He separated them. He took them out of all the other nations to be different. 
So that why? So that why? Why? Yes, so they could reveal God to all of the other nations. They were going to be God's chosen people, a kingdom of priests, as Exodus 19, 5 and 6 says. That, That was God's plan, an entire kingdom of priests, so that the rest of the world could know God through them. But in order to do that, they were going to need to stand out a little bit. They were going to need to be different than everybody else. But now, because they want to be like all the other nations, basically what they're doing is just rejecting their calling, rejecting their identity completely and their role that God has given them. The privilege, really. I forget where that is. Like I think it's Deuteronomy 7 where God says, I didn't pick you out to be my people because you're something special. <laughs> I picked you out to be my people because... Well, I'm special. Not me. God. God's special. Right? It, it wasn't because of, it was just because of God. Like, this was a privilege for them to be his chosen people. They decided they didn't want it anymore. When you break it down, what we see is that, first of all, Israel is supposed to be a nation governed by God's ruling word. That's what was supposed to govern them. Instead, they are basing their behavior not on God's word, but on the other nations. Okay? And they just want to be like the other nations. Number two, they are called to be distinct, different, and holy. But instead, they want to conform, they want to fit in, they want to be the same. Thirdly, they were called to be a light to the other nations, revealing God to those nations. Instead, Israel is taking their cue from those nations. Instead of showing them God, they're just blending in and not revealing God to those other nations at all. They're just becoming one of them. Okay. Now today, the church has the same missional identity as Israel. We have that now. Peter uses this very same language in probably one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, 1 Peter 2.9. I go back to this verse all the time because I really think there's not a better verse than this to declare our calling right now. Okay, 1 Peter 2, 9. And he says, in that, that we are a chosen people. Hear the same language. We are a chosen people. We are a royal priesthood. We as believers now are the priesthood. We've, we've taken over that job. And we are God's chosen people. Saved, why? So that we can proclaim the excellencies of Christ to the rest of the world. So we've now been given that calling. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Go, ladies, go. (laughs) I thought that was really neat to look at the similarities there. We, like Israel, are to be governed by God's word. We, like Israel, let me give you the verses, are to be distinct, different, and holy. It says that in Romans 12, too. Do not be conformed to this world. 1 Peter 1.15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Same thing. And thirdly, we like Israel are to make Christ known from our neighbors to the nations, right? To the rest of the world. Matthew 28.19, you can use that verse. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, 
or Matthew 5:16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We have the same calling now that Israel had. So I don't know, how are we doing at that? <laughs> Not great sometimes. Right? I was thinking about this, that this week. I, I was thinking, okay, if we go 1,500 years from now or 1,000 years from now and there's a written history of us as a people and then they still have God's word around because we know that's not going anywhere, what would that be like if someone is studying our history and what we did with God's word? Hmm? It's a little scary. <laughs> now, that's the other thing I thought this week, too. I am sure that not every, well, I don't know if I can be sure, but I would think there's a remnant of people that did not want this king to happen. You know? I mean, there's probably people that agreed with Samuel that loved the Lord with all their heart, they, and they, they looked to God as their king. They didn't want a king. So what of those people in all of this? You know? They, they kind of got, I don't know, ran over. Like, we might feel like we're getting run over by everything that's going on in the government right now. But so what they were just supposed to remain faithful to the Lord. God would take care of them in his own way. You know, but eh, that's a side note for you. I thought, like, what about those people? You know, what, what? I'm sure they weren't happy about this. Okay, where are we? Your principle. Here's your first principle for the night. We are called to be like God, not like the world. It's pretty simple. We are called to be like God, not like like the world. It is not comfortable to be different. We would rather just be like everybody else. I would rather be like everybody else. But that's not our calling. We are called to be different. So that the rest of the world can see Christ in us. So to conform to the patterns of this world is to reject our God-given calling. To conform to the patterns of this world is to reject our God-given calling. So if we have the same calling as Israel, then I think we also need to ask, are we making the same mistake as Israel? We have to get a little introspective and ask, are we making the same mistake? Mistake. Have we been throwing away our calling because we just want something else? We just be easier, right, than having to live by faith and have this king that we can't see all the time. So back up with me for a minute and just look at this big picture of what's happening here. Israel is demanding something of God that is not going to help them, but it's going to, in fact, hinder their calling. They're demanding something of God that is going to hinder what God has for them. Having a king is going to hinder their ability to be able to serve God first and foremost. Now they're going to have to serve this king. It's going to get in the way. So here's the question for us. Are we asking God for things that will make us more like him in our prayer life? Or are we asking God for things that will make us more like the world? What are we asking for? Remember, this first part's all about asking. Are we asking God for things that will make us more like him? Are we asking God for things that will make us more like the world, more like everyone else? That's, that's a tough question. 
And it's one that you might have to think about during your prayer time. You know, sometimes I go through my prayer time and everything's about me, 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 me. There's not a whole lot in there that's probably very honoring to the Lord. (laughs) And we are supposed to bring all of our requests before him. It is not wrong to ask God for things. I do not want you to get that idea at all, okay? Matthew 7 says that we need to be asking, ask, seek, knock. For we know what, you know, parents, we love to give good gifts to our children. How much more does our father love to give good gifts? And we're going to see that. We're going to get there. Remember, God, the second half is about God giving. But the problem a lot of times is our motives behind our asking. Just like the Israel's motives. We ask with the motive of gaining blessing apart from obedience. We don't want to obey God. We would just rather him give us what we want. Prosperity and success would be fantastic. Please, I'll order one of those. And then we ask with selfish desires. I just really want this, Lord, because I just really want this, I just really want this. If we are begging God for something more than we are begging him for himself, we have maybe idolized it. You know, that we've just decided that's the thing we have to have for happiness. Like, I really need this right now. I've so been there, too. I have done that. I have done that. More than one occasion, I know. One example I can give you is um, I did not, I had never been kissed until I met Craig. I had never had a boyfriend. I made it all the way through college. And I just thought there was something wrong with me. Like, I'm, that's it. I mean, graduation approaching, and I was like, I'm destined to be single for the rest of my life obviously everyone can tell that and I begged God for a husband I begged him for one God did answer my prayer and he's been so gracious in giving me Craig but the lesson that God taught me before all of that was honey you don't need a man to make you happy I don't know if I actually did learn that until after I got married because for a while I looked to Craig to satisfy all those cravings that I had I thought, I thought marriage was going to do that for me. It wasn't. God does that for me. He's really the thing that I, I need the most, right? He's what I need. It's not, Craig's not going to do that. So we do that. We beg him for things sometimes, not the right things. Our motives are wrong. Uh, we ask for things that are going to make us more like the world instead of asking God for things that are going to make us more like him. We ask him for something that's going to make us more like him. He's like, yes, done. Yes, right there. That's what I want you asking for. Yes, but how often are we asking for those things? I don't know. I don't know how often we're asking for those things. Now, where are we? I have no idea. I'm going to give you another principle, though. Here's the thing that I think sometimes we get tricked on. I think the devil tricks us with this. And it's kind of like what we talked about last week. It's joy-filling to house the attributes of Christ. It's joy-filling to house the attributes of Christ. Okay? So when we stop and we think about what we're asking God for... Are we asking things that are going to further God's kingdom? Are we asking things that are going to further my own kingdom? Are we asking for things that are only physical and earthbound things? Or are we also praying about spiritual matters at the same time? Um, When we look at that and, and we weigh all of that, I mean, we're still supposed to ask. So please don't hear me say we're not supposed to ask. But 
I went back and I thought, yeah, how did Jesus teach us to pray? What did he tell us to say? God's kingdom come. He said, when you pray, God's kingdom come. God's will be done. He wants us asking for God's kingdom. He wants us asking for God's will. Because he knows there's nothing more satisfying for us than living in God's kingdom and living according to God's kingdom with God as our king for God's will. He knows that's the most satisfying thing. It was not an accident then that that's how God told us to pray. Isn't that kind of cool? He just, he knows this is what's best for you guys. Pray God's kingdom come. Pray God's will be done. That's going to be the most satisfying thing for you. It's not where the Israelites were at, is it? They did not want God's kingdom. They were going to have their own kingdom. Okay, how are we doing so far? We good? Making sense? All right, pipe up again if you have something to say. As we lean into this second part, we're going to talk about giving. We've got Israel's asking. We've got God's giving on this other side. I got something in my throat. So, like we've already said, Israel did not care what God was going to say. They just wanted this king. What are the things that Samuel warns them about in 1 Samuel 8, 11 through 17? What are some of the things? You've got one in almost every verse. Verse 11. Yes, he will take your sons. Verse 13. He's not only going to take your sons, he's going to take your daughters. Verse 14. What's the king going to take? Man, that would make me mad. The best of my fields, you cannot have our best fields. The best of our fields, the best vineyards, the best orchards. Yes! All of it. It's all going to belong to the king. Along with verse 15. What's he taking verse 15? 10%. 10%. Who's that belong to? It belongs to God. Now the king is going to take it. Isn't it interesting when you look through some of the, the things that the Israelites had to do, like their firstborn sons belong to God. These things really belonged to God. And now this earthly thing was going to, this thing, earthly king was going to take them. The king that Israel is asking for is a king that is going to take, 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 take. He's going to take whatever he wants. And ironically, what the very thing that, the very reason the Israelites want a king is for prosperity and success, right? And yet they're going to get a king who is going to take that from them. Going to take their prosperity and their success right out of their fields. And he's going to take it for themselves. And the sobering reality is this. God is going to give them exactly what they're asking for. Oh, that needs to preach a little bit, right? I mean, let's just praise the Lord right now that he does not give us everything that we ask for. (laughs) Because how many times have I asked for something that was not good for me? The example that came to my mind is my little girl self, again, I guess I just wanted to be married since I was a little girl, asking and asking and asking if I could just marry the, the boy that was a really good family friend. 
I just went, Lord, can I just marry him? Praise the Lord, I did not marry him. <laughs> he has a fantastic, I'm so thankful God did not answer our prayer. He has a great wife, and they're a fantastic couple. Do you know what he makes his wife do for vacation? <laughs> Tent camping. <laughs> that relationship never would have worked, okay? Bless all of you who will go camping in a tent. I will not. Then we would have had a horrible marriage. God just knows. So let's just praise him right now that he does not say yes to everything we ask for. Sometimes his no is the most merciful thing he can do for us. And yet sometimes it hurts when he says no. And yet we're asking with the wrong motives. I didn't even go to that verse. But write down James 4, 3 through 5. Let me just read it real quick. I want to jump back. James 4, 3 through 5. What's it say? It says, I have them all marked. Where's James? Oh, there it was. What's it say? God tells us right here. James 4, 3 through 5. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's right there. Yet that's what they were doing, right? They wanted to be like all the other nations. They wanted to be friends with the world. You make yourself an enemy of God. God's not messing around with that verse. All right? Okay. I went back to that. All right. He's going to give them exactly what they're asking for. They want a king like all the other nations. Now, this, this just fascinated me. I hope this fascinates you too. So they, God's going to give, them, give him Saul, right? Saul, it even says, I think twice in the scripture, that Saul is tall. He's like a head taller than everybody else. Nowhere else, to my knowledge, and I think there was quite a few commentaries that said this, but does it talk about an Israelite being tall? I think he's the only one. What it talks about is Canaanites being tall. So, uh, well, Goliath also. Goliath was tall. He's a Philistine. And then you have the sons of Anak, you go, which go back to the Nephilim, which you can find in Genesis. They were really tall people. And in the very beginning of Judges, one of the reasons that they didn't go in and take the land is because they were scared of these tall people. They didn't want to go against the tall people. So what God's like, God has such a sense of humor. Okay, you want a king like all the other nations? I'm going to give you a tall one, <laughs> right? Do you see? Like even down to Saul's physique, they're going to get a king like all the other nations. That's the first thing. Uh, there's some other ones here. Did you notice that Saul did not even recognize Samuel? Did you notice that in the story? That just flabbergasted me because it's told us several times in the text already that Samuel is a prophet from Dan to Beersheba. So he's a prophet through all of Israel. Okay? And he's well known. He's got to be. And they, it says in there, like, all Israel several times. So if we go back to chapter 3, the word of the Lord is given to Samuel for all Israel. And, and that where Samuel, uh, his circuit, where he would go and he would judge the people, was not very far away from where Saul lived. One thing that I read said it was like five miles away. He did not even recognize the guy. He did not even know about Samuel, is what it makes it sound like, because his servant is the one who tells him, hey, there's this guy. Have you not heard about this guy? Like, hello, he's the prophet of Israel. 
right? That right there again. The servant was leading him, which I thought was odd. Yeah. So it points us to Saul's spiritual blindness is what it points us to. All right. You, they want a king like all the other nations. Fine. I'll give you a king that doesn't know me because those other nations don't know me. Again, you see God, what God's doing there? Okay. Uh, and then you go on. Okay, right off the bat, Saul cannot find his donkeys. <laughs> I have days like that. You like, can't find your donkeys? Okay, he's lost his donkeys. He's a terrible shepherd. That's what that's showing us. You and a king like all the other nations, you're going to have a terrible shepherd. If he cannot keep track of his donkeys, how in the world is he going to keep track of the people? He's not. As opposed to God's promised king, who is what? The good shepherd, right? Mm -hmm. And he loses none of his sheep. Mm -hmm. Do you see that in the text there? Okay. Also, when Saul is first introduced to the people, where is he? He is hiding, right, among the luggage, which is kind of hilarious. He's hiding. But again, what that can be showing us in application is he's lost. It's, it's a physical picture of a spiritual truth, all right? The only reason they found him is because God told, him, told them through Samuel, I guess, where he was. He's behind the luggage, guys. <laughs> they can't find him. This is the king they're asking for. This is the king that is going to lead them and fight all of their battles and bring them all their prosperity and their success. You see how warped our thinking can be sometimes and why it's so important to ask for God's will to be done and for God's kingdom to come because we don't ask for the right things. We do not ask most of the time for the right things. And honestly, as I read through chapters 9 and 10, I was really impressed with Samuel because if I were Samuel, I mean, he just thinks this whole thing is evil in the first place, and yet he's going to treat Saul with the utmost respect the whole time. What's he do? He gives him the choicest piece of the sacrifice, gives him the leg for Saul to eat. Uh, he also sets Saul at the head of the table. He takes him back to his house, and this little specific detail is kind of fun. He gives him the rooftop. That's like the best place to sleep because that's where you would get all the breezes up top. That would be the coolest spot in the house. He gives that to Saul. He is treating him like a king. He's being respectful to him. That would be hard to do if you knew this whole thing was going to ruin these people who you have been loving and pouring into for all of these years. He does this with respect. He doesn't scold Saul when he doesn't know who he is. He simply trusts the Lord and then he aids in Saul's ascension to the kingship. It, it was interesting in chapter 9, did you notice all the uses of up? Up, up, up. 9-11, they go up the hill. 9-14, he goes up to the city. 9-19, he goes up to the high place with Samuel. 9-24, the cook takes up the leg of the sacrifice and sets it before Saul. And then 9-25, Saul goes up to the roof. And then in 9.26, Samuel says to Saul, Up, that I may send you on your way. This is giving us this picture of this ascension. All right? This ascension up into the kingship. But then look at verse 10.1. 
What does Samuel call him in 10.1? A prince. Did anyone catch that? He didn't call him a king. He calls him a prince. Because who is the real king? God is the real king. So if, if Saul is going to be a successful king, he's going to have to be a prince. He's going to have to put himself under the authority of God if he is going to do this successfully. Now, we already talked about the different signs a little bit. Obviously, all of this would have been really hard, I think. Would have been hard for me for Saul to kind of take in. Like, he just went on a walk to find his donkeys, and then some guy told him he's, tells him he's going to be king. That's a little bit to take in. beautiful picture and uh, what a mercy of God, right? So even though he is giving them exactly what they've asked for, he's still weaving, right? His perfect plan at the same time. Mm, that's, that's pretty cool. He's weaving that in at the same time, pointing to Christ. Uh, the, first, the first sign that Saul has, it says there's going to be two men near Rachel's tomb. That is an interesting little tidbit right there. It points us back to the fact that Saul is a Benjaminite. And the Benjaminites were almost totally destroyed in Judges chapter 20. Because the men of Gabeah, if you remember back then, the Benjaminites raped a Levite's concubine. And then he like cut her up into pieces and sent her out through all Israel. Yeah. And then there was this big war and everybody went up against the tribe of Benjamin. And then the Israelites hated the tribe of Benjamin so much that they swore that they would never give their daughters in marriage to another Benjaminite. So then they had to come up with this big old plan as to how they could give these Benjaminite men, they didn't want to lose the tribe after they just killed all of them, how they could get them wives. You can go back and read at the very end of Judges if you want to. It's really interesting. But that is another indication. He's a Benjaminite. He's from Gibeah, where this whole horrible story happened. That's where Saul is from. This is just another indication that this is truly a king, like all the other nations, who comes from a backdrop of immorality. He comes from, from a story of, of immorality. And yet, this is, this is what I love about this, God is going to give him a chance. He's, he's going to give him a chance, right? He gives him a new heart. God is so giving, he gives him a new heart. Now, Samuel tells Saul to wait seven days until he comes, and then he will show him what to do, and then the whole ceremony will take place, right? And then that's when God says that he will graciously give Saul a new heart. God is setting up this king, even though... Even though he's not happy about this, he is setting up this king for success. That's what we're seeing. He sets up us up for success by anointing us with the Holy Spirit and, right, and giving us a new heart. He's still giving Saul a chance. I loved that. Even though he comes from this evil background, even though 
this whole plan is really going to go awry very quickly, God still gives him a chance. But this is the key right here. If Saul is to rule God's people the right way, then he will need to rule with that new heart, right? If we're to be successful in our calling, we're going to need to live in the context of the Holy Spirit, that new heart. And the fact that Saul prophesies with the prophets is a visible picture of what's going to be necessary for Israel's kings. What's going to be necessary for them? The word of God is going to be in them. It's going to have to be in them if they are going to rule as a prince of God's people in the right way. Do you see that? They're going to have to dwell with the word of God. They're going to have to speak it. They're going to have to live it so that God's people will speak it and live it. They're going to have to be directing God's people to God's word all the time. That's what God's king is supposed to do. Well, who's the only one that does that? Jesus, the true king, our true king, is the only one that does that for us perfectly all the time. Now, we spent a lot of time asking, talking about the king that the people have asked for, but I want to end by really focusing now on Christ, who is the king that God has promised. As opposed to the people's king who takes, 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 takes he's going to take all your stuff from you, the promised king, Jesus, is the king that gives and gives and gives. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our king came to give, not to take. Your last principle then is Jesus is the king that gives. He is the king that gives. It might feel like he takes sometimes, but I guarantee you he is always giving more than he is taking. And you cannot outgive God. He will just give and give and give. Jesus is the king that gives. He is not the king that takes. At Jesus' trial, right before his crucifixion, Pilate asks him whether he is the king of the Jews in John 18, 33. And Jesus replies this, My kingdom is not of this world. Meaning he is not like the other nations. He is not a king like the other nations. His kingdom is not of this world. He is first and foremost the word itself. He doesn't just have to live with the word and try and uphold the word. He is the word. When he speaks, he is the word of God. That's our king. He's not only anointed, well, Samuel anoints Saul, but God anoints Jesus. We see that. And he is anointed with the Holy Spirit. But he rules with a scepter of righteousness. That's how Jesus rules. Hebrews 1, 8, 9 is a good reference for you on that. So here's the question then. Is that your king? Is Jesus your king? And I think we would all probably be like, yeah, he is. But do we let him reign in our life? 
do we actually give our king control of what's going on in our lives? What we see in this passage is that allegiance to any other king will take, take, take all the time. So we don't necessarily have some guy robed in here as our king, all right, like they did, but we make other things our kings. We make all kinds of things our kings. Alone time, for a long time, has been my king. <laughs> I love alone time, right? That might be my king, or children might be my king, or marriage might be my king, or success might be my king. What's the thing that I'm chasing, you know? That thing, that thing that we just cannot live without, is that our king? Because that king, if you think about it, will take and take and take from you. It will take your joy. It will take your motivation. It will take your whatever. It will take. But God gives. He gives and he gives and he gives. I wrote this. I'm going to pass these out, or you can come get one afterwards, a couple of years ago for Christmas time for a post that I had to do. It's 50 gifts God has given us. And it just goes through, and you can look at them. Yeah, pick one a day. If you don't feel like God has been a very giving king to you, or like he's just taken all the time, he's not giving, this is a good place to start. This is a great place. It goes through. He's, he gives us light, food, rest, presence, peace, his spirit. Life, breath, steadfast love, mercy. He gives us warning. He gives us a future. He gives us rain. He gives us life, an eternal kingdom. He gives us justice, victory, leadership, eternal life. Did I say that again? I don't know. His word, riches. He gives us worth, shelter, counsel, possessions. He gives us righteousness, reconciliation, adoption, grace, evidence, confidence, inheritance, acceptance, belonging. He gives us security, wisdom. He gives us repentance. We don't come to God on our own. He puts that within us. Uh, he gives us kindness, unity, purpose, freedom, strength, hope, every good thing. He gives us children, joy, forgiveness, salvation, love. If, if God is not, if we're not allowing God to reign in our life, I'm not sure we're receiving these like we should be receiving these. He wants to give. He wants to give. His favorite thing to give us is himself. That's his favorite thing to give us. But half the time, we're not asking for that. <laughs> but if we would ask for that, he's like, yes, I will give you myself. I give you myself all day long, every single day, and I'll give you more and more and more <coughs> until you can't handle it anymore. I think I brought my notebook. I, I also want to point this out to you. I had this on my desk, and I've just been keeping it over the last couple of weeks. I started to see a trend, and I thought, this is perfect. But in chapter 1, what does God give? He provides a son in 1 Samuel chapter 1. In chapter 2, I can give this list to you later, but chapter 2, God provides a priest, a faithful priest. Chapter 3, God provides a prophet. Chapter 4, he provides a substitute. If you go back to chapter 4 and you look, and that's himself. Chapter 5, he provides his own glory. Chapter 6, his own deliverance. Chapter 7, 
He provides victory through sacrifice. All these things point to Christ. You started listing off all of these. They would all, be, they would all point to Jesus. Chapter 8, he provides truth. Chapter 9, he provides a king, just like they asked for. Chapter 10, a spiritual anointing. I'm going to keep making this list. So I think, I have a feeling we're going to see God give something in every single chapter. Because he is a giver. He is the king that gives. I just don't think we're asking for the right things. We're not asking for more of him most of the time. We're asking for stuff most of the time. God is so giving that he gave his son, right? We know that, at the cross for our salvation. And yet the very last, one of the very last things Jesus hears before he dies on the cross, just just think about this for a minute. One of the very last things he hears is, Israel say, we have no king but Caesar. That's one of the last sentences he heard God's people say, we have no king but Caesar. In that moment, with God, their king, right in front of their eyes, Israel didn't just choose a king like the nations. They, cho- they chose a king of the nations. That's how far it can go. And that's how far it did go. And thankfully, God let it go that far because he had a whole other purpose that he was working out, Right? So that he could be our king today, forever and ever and ever. So my prayer for us isn't this just that we will know God. Yes, I want to know God. But I want us to allow him to reign in our life. I want him to be king in your life. I want him to be king in my life. I want to get out of my own way. <laughs> I get in my own way a lot. He's a, he is the king that gives, and I want to accept those gifts. I want to ask him for those. I want, to, I want to ask him for his kingdom, not just my own all the time. Then we're going to be receiving some pretty spectacular things. He's amazing. So do you see that? Do you see the asking versus the giving? Does that make sense? Any questions? Any thoughts? We actually have like two minutes. That'd be the first time that's happened. (laughs) Well, I'll pray. I'll let you out two minutes early. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for Jesus, the king that gives, the only king that gives. I just pray that you will just put within each one of us this, this, this unbelievable willingness just to trust you, Lord, to let you reign in our life, to let you be king to, to ask for your kingdom and not our own. Lord, to ask for more of you. I just pray that we'll just get out of the way so that you can just do amazing things as you make us different, Lord, than the rest of this world, that you make us more like yourself, God. We love you. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.